Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Cattlecast. Today we will be discussing something a bit different with the author of The Great Plant-Based Con. Topics of discussion will be about the health and environmental claims behind the vegan diet and also some of the business drivers behind the ever-increasing highly processed vegan foods on offer in our supermarkets. So then Jane, over to you. My name is Jane Buxton. I'm an author of both nonfiction and fiction. Previous to writing, I I worked in the business world in a sort of highly analytical uh, research-based job in in management, which really prepared me very well for all the research I've had to do uh, for for my nonfiction books, and particularly this one. Um, And I became it interested in this particular topic of of diet, health, environment, probably intensely about three, four years ago in 2019. Yeah, it is very much on the the topic subject. So so that's a bit of why you started to become interested in this area. What led you to writing the book, I guess? I think around middle of 2019, I started to notice that the messaging around plant-based diets was getting much louder, much stronger, that there were more and more organizations arguing in an official capacity for people to stop eating meat or to dramatically reduce their meat consumption. And the facts which were being cited in support of that position didn't make sense to me and were contrary to facts as I understood them. And so I started to look into that a little bit really just to, to for my own benefit to understand the issues. And then you may recall that a movie called The Game Changers came out and that sort of was a bit of a tipping point for me because it seemed to convert a lot of young people to the cause. And a lot of people were saying that they were going to give veganism a go. And I could foresee a big health crisis coming down the path if we weren't careful. Uh, because it was mostly young people adopting this new diet. And so I decided then it was just beyond a research task for me. It had to be a book. It had to be something that I could take out into the world, really, and to open up this discussion and have a broader debate that included many more forms of expert opinion than were currently being included in the debate. Now, having that wide discussion is is so difficult, I think, as vets, you know, we try and do our bits on social media and suddenly something will happen and a, you know, a comment will be put on there and we just go into panic mode and just try and ignore it and not let it affect yeah. us. But actually, you know, it is, it is becoming louder. Um, veganuary, I think, has been a popular thing. I think the last few years it's maybe got a bit quieter and actually sales haven't been massively affected, but it's more that thought process and actually going through the supermarkets is something you notice, which yeah. we have done five years ago. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned supermarkets as being a place where you see the message becoming louder, because, of course, supermarkets are stocking a lot of vegan alternatives. They're highly processed foods. There's an obvious motive for those organizations who've jumped into that market. They're seeing growth opportunity. They're seeing profit-making opportunity. And those products are going to provide that for those companies, but they may not be so helpful for us. So I think this is something that consumers need to be wary of. And again, that's one of the reasons I wanted to explore this and to open up the debate because Many people who are going for those supermarket alternatives may be thinking they're doing good things for their health and good things for the environment, and that may not always be the case. It's interesting you say about the the young consumers. One one thing you can definitely notice is the packaging of those products being a lot more colourful, a lot more targeted compared to, you know, 
traditional dairy milk you either get your red blue and green top and that's right, it sounds boring as isn't as it, it yeah so yeah they're definitely good doing that the marketing well so you mentioned there some of that the health myth benefits or some of the problems around mm. the, the vegan diet was that something you pushed your book on I did I have so I have three sections in the book really one is on the health aspect of plants only diets the other is on the environmental aspects and myth busting in that area and then the third section of the book talks about the different companies organizations people who are promoting these diets and what might be motivating them so but for from the health perspective really I just started by looking at the nutritional benefits of, say, a plants-only diet versus an omnivore, a traditional omnivore diet. And it's very clear that there are nutrient deficiencies in, in a diet that totally excludes animal foods. I think this is less the case with vegetarian or pescatarian, where you, you do have some dairy and you have eggs and they're highly nutritious foods. But if we talk about vegan diets in a traditional sense of the word, plants-only you know, they are lacking in some important vitamins like vitamin A, vitamin B12, D3, EPA, DHA, which are very important to brain function, zinc, iron, you know, the list goes on. These deficiencies in these kinds of vitamins and minerals are reportedly higher in vegans. They are dramatically higher in vegans. And there are studies which I cite in the book which show this. And it strikes me that in a world where 2 billion people suffer from anemia, you know, that's quite a large number. It does not make sense to advocate the withdrawal of foods which can fix that problem, foods that have iron and B12, you know. So I think there's a disconnect here between the health problems we're seeing in the world and the diet that we're recommending to, that people follow. Yeah, definitely. And I have researched this slightly and, and being a vegan, it can vary hugely from somebody who's doing it for um, maybe different reasons, um, but has really researched it, really focusing on that mixed diet and really finds it hard to eat properly, but is, is determined and commits yep. to it compared to somebody who thinks they're doing it and just lives off of, say, dry pasta and tomatoes, ketchup and, and um, toast. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You can be cool yourself a vegan, but it's definitely not a sustainable diet for your health. That's right. That's right. And of course, the pushback to some of the things I've been saying in the book, when I talk about the diets that are lacking in nutrients, a lot of vegans say, well, I managed to do it. And I combine very carefully all my foods I spent and I take a lot of supplements. So that's always part of the solution. It has to be part of the solution because you cannot get some of these vitamins in natural form in plants. My question is, how realistic is it for us to expect everybody to be focusing that much attention on the exact combination? So for instance, protein, it's widely acknowledged that plant proteins are inferior to animal proteins. They don't have the same level of amino acids. They don't have the same level of bioavailability. Yes, if you're really careful, you can combine the, the you know, combinations of proteins like rice and beans as a combination to get your amino acids. But you do have to combine them. You have to think about that every day. You can't just have a plate full of broccoli and think you're getting you know, all the protein that you need. And you will end up consuming an enormous amount of those plant proteins and particularly carbohydrate form. So you then get into the problem of excess intake of carbohydrates so you can get your protein 
and you get gastric distress, which is why the common complaint amongst people who give up veganism is that they were bloated and had gastric problems. Now, there's a very good biological reason for that. So yes, it can be done. And for some people, it may work very well, but I think it's entirely unrealistic to expect most people to thrive on the diet. The health one is definitely a difficult one and how they advertise just cutting out meat is the the easy option. It's like, actually, it takes a lot more thinking and planning than that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So so you hinted at there, one of the other sections was about the environment. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you start researching into that? Well, first of all, I found out who the people were who were leading thinkers in this field. I interviewed them and they led me to, you know, the research papers that would be necessary to read and all the different perspectives on this. So I had to go way beyond the people who and the scientists who are normally cited in the newspaper articles we read every day. Unfortunately, those articles are taking their information from an incredibly narrow cast of scientists who seem to have become the go-tos whenever anybody wants to write something about the environment. And they they really are just pushing one perspective. And interestingly, particular scientists, um, who I won't name here, but uh, I'm sure a lot of people have read their papers, they are vegan. So they are activists masquerading as neutral scientists. So that's how I went about it. And what I discovered though, and, and what actually strikes you immediately is when you look at the raw data about emissions, for instance, in the UK, we have a situation where dairy cattle and beef cattle and sheep livestock in total generate about 7% of UK emissions, okay? It's even less in the US. And then you compare that to the 80 plus percent, which is generated by transport, energy supply, business and residential use, It's clear that we're not going to move the needle by eliminating meat from our diets, right? And in fact, Professor Miles Allen, who is a highly respected scientist from the University of Oxford and has participated in the um, climate change uh, 1.5 degrees initiative, he has said very clearly and definitively many times that if we eliminate methane from livestock, we're going to move the needle very, very little on climate change. It will have such a small impact. If we don't tackle the fossil fuel driver of climate change, he said pretty much everything else is irrelevant. Now, this is a big picture statement, but we need to really keep that in mind because people can argue about all of the intricacies, but that's a basic fact. And therefore, In a way, why are we even having this conversation about to be vegan or not to be vegan? It's just not going to make much of a difference. Now, that is not to say that we can't do great things with agriculture and with livestock. So the Regen Ag movement, which is is really on the up. And in fact, I was at a fantastic conference yesterday called Groundswell, and I'm sure you've heard of that. The sessions which were demonstrating just how much good proper management of livestock can do for the environment to sequester carbon, that's worth focusing on. How can we leverage livestock management to actually fix the problem rather than blaming them for the problem, which clearly isn't the case. I think it's like most things, as soon as you start looking into some of the figures, it's from 
average cow on an average system well one yeah. of the parts of vetting in this country that I love is in the morning I can be on one system in the lunchtime I can go to another and in the afternoon I'm on a totally different system whether that's housed all year round organic right uh, pasture for life you know they're out all the time so there are massive variations mm. just in this country and then there are massive variations in land use if we stopped a section of the livestock industry then actually some of our land couldn't be reused into arable land some could which which maybe could be one of those small half a percent tweaks that we might think is worth it yeah but actually there there are parts of the land that couldn't be used for any other things so yeah I mean something like two-thirds of agricultural land is not suitable for cropping so it's very clear that if we took livestock off that all of that land as is advocated by some people, we would not be able to grow crops and therefore we would have a food shortage problem as well as not having fixed the environmental problem. Yeah, and then looking into that land, I guess, that could be arable, actually integrating livestock into that, even if it's a three-year rotation within a 10-year plan, Mm -hmm. then lowers the carbon footprint of the arable for for the seven years that they are in that plan. So that's right. It's a lot bigger picture than people think. It is. It's big and it's complicated. And I, I think that the, the debate has been badly served by reducing it to a couple of key sound bites, you know. Um, and you said that the third section was more on the sort of people behind selling some of these, these yeah. products. That's quite an interesting sort of third section I think people who have done a bit of research understand some of the health and environment aspects Mm -hmm. of it but maybe hadn't looked into some of the marketing areas of it I wondered if you could give us a bit of an insight into that area yeah so I mean the biggest and most obvious drivers of this vegan revolution as it were are processed food companies Some of them have gone totally plant-based, so they're new to the system and the market. Others are just old-fashioned processed food companies who've seen an opportunity to add a a whole extra line. Now, you can't blame them. They're just doing what companies do, which is um, pursue growth and profit. And they've been fed this information that it's better for your health and better for the environment by various scientists. And they've also paid for papers to be written that prove that. And they're using them because that's what you do. You use every marketing angle that you can. What I think is really interesting, though, is that recently we've seen the Advertising Standards Authority push back on this. And so you'll be aware that Tesco has been slapped on the wrist because it was making false environmental claims. The same was true of Oatly, five counts of abuse of advertising for making false claims. And in the States, there's a class action suit against one of the big plant-based burger companies because they're making false health claims and they're exaggerating the amount of protein that's in their plant-based burger. So I see you nodding because you'd be aware of all of these things. So really, who knew that the Advertising Standards Authority would be our friend in this, but they are holding the line against this falsification of data. And I think, hopefully, those kinds of cases will make the public twig a little bit to the fact that they are being marketed to. Now, all it takes for the public to realize that all is not as it seems, is to pick up a packet of fake eggs, for instance, which, by the way, are about three times the price of a carton of eggs. Read the ingredients and look and say, do I want that in my eggs? 
Yeah. Do I need that stuff in my eggs? It's there's dextrose, methylcellulose, sort of fillers, emulsifiers. These are not pure products. So I think that will become very clear to people. I think maybe what's less clear is say the media, and I have a whole section on the media. Why would they be promoting this? Because they overwhelmingly are. You know, there are exceptions, but they are overwhelmingly pro plant based messaging. Now, one of the reasons is that some of the media have a financial interest in the plant-based cause, right? So the Guardian has taken funding for editorial from a large philanthropy animal rights activist group called the OPP. $2 million were sent the Guardian's way. Now, there's some obligation for that. They'll have to cover a certain amount of vegan and plant-based causes for that. The same is true with Channel 4 that had a tie-up with a meatless burger company. So these are compromising relationships that mean that those organizations, those media outlets are much more likely to err on the plant-based messaging side. But then you get the every everyday reality in newspapers, which is they need to fill space. They need the headlines. And nutritional epidemiology and particularly plant-based oriented nutritional epidemiology supplies this constant stream of headlines. Eating a vegan diet means you'll get less COVID, less severe COVID. Eating a vegan diet means you'll live five years longer, et cetera, et cetera. Swap meat for nuts and gain a year of life. Now, what I do in the book and what other people have done alongside me is go into those studies that are being quoted. And what you find invariably is they don't say what the headline says they say. In fact, the the amusing one about COVID was that uh, uh, it turned out that the people that were supposedly getting less severe COVID as a result of eating a self-proclaimed plant-based diet actually were not even eating a plant-based diet. They were eating meat, fish, and dairy several times a week. Now, this is not vegan by any stretch of the word, and yet the headline will stick in most people's yeah. brains, right? This is the danger. So I would advise anyone who's reading those headlines on a daily or weekly basis to take a breath, you know, look at the text of the article, and then if you can bear it, go and look at the study and you'll soon see that it actually it says nothing of the sort. Those are already two very powerful interests that I discussed, which is big business and the media. The double whammy of those two together has created this sort of almost unassailable argument that plant-based is the way to go. Now, seeing the real science behind those headlines, it is quite shocking how they can link the things together, really. Have you Which looked guess, at them, some of those as well? And dug into some it? of them, yeah. yeah. And as the BCBA board, when we were putting together our sustainability policy, um, trying to find some of those real papers, um, and you were like, well, that can't be it. That doesn't at all say that's right the paper was trying to say it said and it was like well I've checked my reference that is the paper so yeah definitely the case and so then trying to bring it back I guess to to BCBA is why are you here today talking to to the vets about it what place can we play well I I think um like farmers uh, you're on the front line of this because you're dealing with animals every day therefore you're facing the most difficult choices Uh, of any of us in terms of trying to balance out the different arguments. So I think it's important that you, you have this discussion and that you work out a position which you're comfortable with as as vets. 
And I think it's difficult because what people will throw at you, which they may not throw at ordinary, an author, for instance, or other lay people, is the whole conflict between how can you care for animals and then how can you eat animals? And that is a, a, an incredibly reductionist way of looking at animals and the, the, the role they play in our lives and the role they play in ecosystems. And I think what you need to do is to step back and look at ecosystems and think about the functionality of animals in the ecosystems. And you're playing a role of keeping that going, right? And I also think that there's somebody who's written amazingly well about this circle of life type of um, argument for why, why do we eat animals? Why does anyone eat animals? Why does any creature eat another animal? And it's very clear that in that circle of life, there are all kinds of relationships between the predator and the prey. And they become, they're natural. And we're willing to see that as a natural thing when it's in the wild, but we won't afford our own selves that benefit of that analysis. We are essentially biological creatures. And I think it's Colin Tudge, who is, is a wonderful writer on ecology. And he said, we ignore the biological imperative at our peril. We cannot beat what our biology drives us to need and to eat. We cannot alter the fact that we need these nutrients and that these nutrients come from animal foods. Um, we can pretend and we can talk you know, a good game around it, but essentially we're animals and we have those needs. And I think that therefore our obligation is to meet those needs in the most compassionate way possible which is to give domesticated animals, those animals that are within our care, the most humane treatment, the most compassion we can, and to respect their role in the ecosystem and in providing our best health. It's interesting you say that as vets, obviously like most, a lot of industries we're facing a recruitment and retention problem. And actually one of the things we're trying to get across is actually as cattle vets, you can massively help a lot of the carbon footprint by improving the welfare, by improving the productivity of the animals under your yes. care. It's not just if you're going to choose a plant-based burger tonight or a beef burger, which maybe some of your, your um, evidence makes that even a questionable thing, but it's actually we can change it from you know hundreds of tonnes of CO2 difference if we get a dairy farm carving down a few months earlier, stopping that mastitis problem. Right, you know, a beef herd not having that infectious disease problem and losing some calves. Um, yes. So actually, us as vets can massively help the environment by making those animals more effective and efficient, and then equally trying to support the farmers in making those more environmental support ways. So maybe mm -hmm. it's raising the cattle, not having them in. That's right. You know, using their nutrition differently. So yeah. vets, we are in an unusual position. And one of the nice things is, I guess, we are, we try and be evidence-based. So um, hopefully some of the papers within the book is a useful way for us to get at some of that evidence instead yeah. of getting sucked into some of the papers that are sponsored, as you hinted at previously. Um, so you just brought in there that the, the welfare issue, because I think that's probably from a general public perception, a lot of reasons yeah. why people get think about the vegetarian and vegan diets um, a little bit more. Was there much in your book about that area? Or 
I do cover it and because, um, and I, yeah, I spend a little bit of time talking about whether in fact the vegan diet represents a cruelty-free diet uh, compared to an omnivore diet. And I think that there's cruelty in different ways that comes from a vegan diet. And a lot of people who eat plant-based don't realize that. They don't realize the number of animals which die in the process of getting plant foods to the table. You know, whether it be the mice that get chopped up, unfortunately, in a combine harvester, or there's a quote which people have responded to in my book, which is by a Californian farmer who said he has to kill 40,000 gophers every season to protect his fruit trees and avocado crops. You know, ducks are regularly killed, made homeless by rice paddies. So it's naive of us to think that we can live and eat without any damage to or any uh, impact on the animal world. Now, the question then becomes, did we intend to harm that animal, which is what we do if we slaughter them for food? Uh, whereas it's accidental it's, if it's a side effect of crop farming, right? I think that the notion of intent, though, is a very slippery one, because if you know you're going to be having to kill those gophers or those mice in the course of your regular annual crop farming, that's pretty much intentional. It's part of the plan, as it were, and it's a known side effect of the plan. So we can't turn our, our eyes away from that and pretend that it isn't happening. Yeah, and I guess that's a less controlled thing compared to animals in slaughterhouses where there are, you know, lots of legislation, lots of things put in place, a lot of veterinary input mm. into making sure it's done in, in the best way possible. So yeah. like all these things, I think it is a, a complex topic. But thank you for going through that with me. OK, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for going through some of the ideas and science um, that you have put in your book and wondered if you just take this opportunity to say a bit more about the book, what it's called, and what you think we'd get out of reading it. So the book is called The Great Plant-Based Con. And, you know, you rightly say it, it is based on quite a lot of science and it's quite dense with science. But I hope I've managed to be a sort of bridge between the science and the layperson, because that was really my intention in writing the book, is to bring the science to people and bring it in a really approachable way. And I also hope that people will read it as less a policy and public debate kind of book and much more something that will have practical impact in their lives. So I think if people read it and take on board the messages, I think they will be healthier. So there's, there's a lot of practical stuff in there about what to eat, how to eat and why we're saying that that's the best. And they will be more informed about how to impact the environment in practical ways, and they'll be less confused. And particularly parents, I think, I really have this hope that parents will use this book to help um, them have conversations with their kids, their young kids, their teenagers, whatever, who are maybe also confused, and that families will be able to talk more in a more informed way about this. And I, I think that would be all for the good. That gives us a great insight into the book there, and hopefully we'll all go off and buy some coffees and get reading. I think the, the idea of, you know, spreading the word, whether it's through your family, um, with teenagers definitely getting asked and thinking mm. about this topic a lot more, or whether it's your peers at the office or your friends down the pub, you know, I think it will give us a lot more conversation starters and maybe some opportunities to do some of that myth-butting yeah. um, that goes around. 
Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. So let's keep the conversation flowing. If you've had any vegan trolls post on your vet social media platforms, maybe got involved with a school welfare discussion, or even thought twice about what food you could offer at a farmer's meeting, we would love to know about it. Why not drop us a message on any of our social media pages or even email the office. I look forward to hearing from you.